Today on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we vent about bad drivers. Bill buckles me down to talk about the changing nature of work. And Matt lulls us with two very different seekers. Woman, woman, tell me your name. It's so wet, and like I've noticed here in the region, like you get different rain than we do out on the west coast. Like it's very sticky. Oh, okay. Like it sticks to you, and um, it also like in Vancouver and the surrounding areas, it kind of drizzles. Like it doesn't like pour. Yeah, like, it, too often. it goes like uh, dry, and then rains for like four days here. Yeah, and you can see the. Um, I guess it's because the lack of tall mountains in the ocean, right? It's obviously a completely different landscape, but. Um, you can see storms moving in here. Yeah. Like, I, I heard that that was a thing in, like, the Midwest that they, they'll watch, like, storms come in yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know. This is a bit of a uh, an observation I did. And, you know, call me an anthropologist, but this is what we do. I'm constantly observing. And Okay. Well, what's your observation for So, today? something I want to talk to Phil about, and he's lived in the region his whole life. Um, so, like... In Vancouver, we're obviously very good at driving in the rain because it rains like nine months out of the year. Right, yeah. Um, and all various types of rain. But here in, like, say, Ottawa, I've noticed that people completely lose their shit when it rains. <laughs> like, they forget how to drive. They're either right. like, hey, look at me. I could be super aggressive and cut you off because I know how to drive in the rain. Or the opposite is like, oh, I'm terrified. Let me turn my windshield wipers to like maximum high and drive like 30 kilometers under the speed limit. Right, yeah. And I don't know. It's funny because I've also noticed like someone who comes from a place where there's not a lot of snow. Like I was like, okay, I better learn real quick how to drive in the snow. Yes. And he, people here, I think they're they're like great snow drivers and they're very Canadian. Like when you see somebody having trouble getting out of a parallel parking spot, like if you're just walking down the street as like a relatively able-bodied um, person, you're kind of expected to help push. Yeah. You know, and people do, they just stop. And it's yeah. like, you can't really walk by somebody who's stuck in the snow and no. just keep going. You just feel like such a tool. So I don't know. It's just something I've noticed here that people, they just lose it in the rain and it's, I don't know, I was driving up here just screaming out swear words uh, from time to time at people. I was just like, like they were cutting you off or what were they doing? Just dumb moves. Like there was one person who was just driving um, like with the the divider line, like right in the middle of their their car. So they're like covering two lanes and they're just like, it's, I don't know, it, it was just very frustrating for somebody who feels like he's a very good rain driver and it's also baffling because snow is so much harder to drive in you know you got to be more careful you got to have more skills um so it's weird here that people just lose it in the rain yeah i see like when i'm driving in ottawa and you can always tell that snow season has started when driving stops like Mm. um there's a whole contingent of people in ottawa that if there is like a millimeter of snow they like their cars in the in the driveway like they don't drive like they're on buses um interesting and then and then the thing that i know about ottawa is getting onto the 417 when it's snowing people forget that it's a fucking highway Mm. like they like they're driving 60 
on the mm. on-ramp to get on, like, like, come on, move it. Yeah, you know, yeah. you got to get up to 100 here. Yeah, because you don't want to have to, like, go from 60 to, like, 100 in a merge when it's snowing because that's when you start skidding well, your exactly, tires. Right? Exactly. Because they're slipping. <laughs> and, and, I, and that's what they do. And I didn't even grow up with snow. Like, yeah. I know that. It's just, uh, I guess it comes down to common sense, man. Yeah. Well, com- or, not what really. is it? Common sense isn't so common? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uncommon. <laughs> oh, um so anyway we could uh, bore the listeners with more talk about the weather or i could just pass it over to you phil how have you been the last week my uh this week has been pretty good you know um work is uh winding down for me so i have uh two more days left um that's very exciting huh? so by the time this airs uh, actually this will air on uh the last uh i'll be done yeah. when, when this when this gets published this episode uh episode 11 uh i will be done my 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 outside work and I'll be transitioning into a new kind of weird life where I'll be working from home and yeah. Yeah. Almost like what I've been doing for the last like seven years. <laughs> no, that hasn't been seven years for you. <laughs> working from home. No, it's uh like, um, I guess I never really talked about this on here, but just for the people who don't know. Us yeah, actually, personally. actually, yeah, like, it, it fits with the theme of today's episode. Yeah, so yeah. It, talk about, uh, talk about your experience. So, of... so like I, I was doing my, PhD? Like, okay, so when I was doing my master's, I took a one year off right in the middle for a medical leave of absence. I got like two concussions within two weeks and just couldn't do it. That um, was short though, your, your leave. Yeah, well, it was one full year. Like, okay. so it took me three years to finish my master's, so that's fine. Um, and then that's how I, um, how Amy got like a year ahead of me because we originally, right. yeah, my good friend Amy. Um, and does then, she listen to the podcast? No, but I'm going to force her. To. She's that was have to. that was a name drop okay. so that she downloads good. all our episodes. Good. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so I was doing my PhD. I uh, I think I took maybe a year's leave of absence somewhere in there as well. Um, but I withdrew from the PhD last. May after sort of we can talk more details in the show but um yeah so I withdrew for medical reasons and I withdrew it's called in good standing so if anyone else is facing a similar thing in in grad school let's say um there's usually provisions at most universities if you have a legitimate excuse like that um so now I can like reapply and just go back into the PhD which I'm probably not going to do because it's too much but um yeah, for those who don't know, I, I withdrew from my PhD last year. <laughs> but, uh, so how was it working from home? I think that's what we're... Um, it's uh, it's boring, man. It's boring. And you also have to, right at the beginning of the day, like in the morning, after you like pack Mel off to work or whatever and pack her lunch, um, you have to like clock in. Yeah. And, and you got to start. You'd be like 10 o'clock a.m. say, is my start time. And every it, treat it just like work. Like yeah. you have to regiment yourself. And um, I I found that making lists were really good, not only for getting things done, but also giving you a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day. And I'm in a state like medically or whatever, where like, it's an accomplishment to like, say, clean the kitchen and go to the grocery store. Right. You know, and um, so um, a lot of the skills that I developed in grad school, I'm actually bringing right over to my real life and my health issues. And so making lists and making yourself regimented is really helpful because, you know, when you're in grad school, it's it's a lot of thinking. Like you could justifiably sit on your porch and just think about your project for like an hour. And that's actually work as well. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's important not to beat yourself up for um, when you feel like you haven't done anything in a day. Yeah, I think that's one of my greatest fears is, uh, you know, at the 
you know, clocking in. I, I think I have the treating it like work down pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but clocking in and then at the end of the day, four thirty, five o'clock rolls around and I, I kind of like, okay, stop. And then think back of what I've done. And I'm, I'm going to be hard, too hard on myself. Like, oh, I didn't get enough done today or this sort of thing. Um, so I need to develop some strategies, but I, I think I'll uh, keep you and everyone appraised of what mm. works and what doesn't. Um, um, can I, I'll just throw one little thing. Um, because my wife, Melanie, um, she has a lot of, um, guilt. Like if she, she works in politics, so her job, um, she'll go in and says, oh, I'm going to do these three projects today. And then all of a sudden, like she has to write a speech yeah. for her MP or something. So, um, she will often, when I pick her up, be like, how did work go? What did you do today? And she'll be like, oh, I didn't really get as much done as I wanted to. And then I'll ask her what she did. And it turns out she did get a whole bunch done. <laughs> and so sometimes you'll uh, get your mail to just ask you what you did yeah. during the day so that you don't dwell on it yourself. Yeah, my mail's the same, and it, though. It, it'll also make you accountable because you know you're going to have to tell your wife what you did that day. Yeah. So you better have something to tell her. Well, like, um, <clears throat> you know, I always find, okay, so uh, I set my list. Uh, let's say on my list I need to read a book or I need to, you know – that's too. That's you know, too big, bro. That's no, too big. You like, got to break that down. No, I, I, of course. That's the uh, sorry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> sorry, so, man. so like my list for Getting the week. Excited about uh, time management, <laughs> right? Yeah, like so, like on my list for the week, I need to read a book. Yeah, I'm not going to read it in one day. I'm going to read like a chapter or two, right? Mm. Um, but then you know you get on to doing other stuff that comes up, and then at the end like of the landscaping, day, like landscaping <laughs> or like doing whatever, and then at the end of the day, you say, "Oh, geez, all I did was read like a chapter of a book." Right. And so I think that scares me a bit. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, enough of that. Yeah. More to talk about in the episode. <laughs> yeah. More to talk about. Um, yeah. So how's your, uh, how's been your week, Matt? Anything new to report on? Well, I was like, I never get a stomach bug, like a, like the flu, stomach oh, flu. Oh yeah, you're still and dealing with that. I right? was like, just messed up. Like our last episode that we recorded, like I was just like you're sitting here white. kind of trembling and stuff, yeah. just holding it together. Um, so I've been quite sick, man. I was up at 4 a.m. today and um, was sick like all through the night. So I'm uh, hanging in there, but we are committed to our loyal listener. We are and, committed. <laughs> and, um, so here we are, man, out in the woods and... And I'm feeling a little bit better, so uh, right. I've just been sick the last week, so <laughs> that, right. that's what I've been doing. <laughs> well, that, that uh, on that cheery note, yeah. uh, welcome everyone. This is Semi Intellectual Musings, the podcast that explores social science, humanities, and arts. Uh, co-hosted by yours truly, Philip Remo and Matt Sanderson. Um, on this podcast, we try to connect the published world and the academic world to your everyday life, and we do it through book reviews, uh, through article reviews. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we reviewed uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, and we made tons of connections. So that's another thing that we do. We connect kind of everyday life with the published world. Yeah, and uh, including the hockey cards as well. That's uh, very much everyday life. Like we connected it to our memories of childhood, and we also somehow managed to make connections to the fall of the Soviet Union. So, <laughs> And uh, how we do historical sociology or history, how we organize archives. Uh, yeah. And how you can predict uh, what... Uh, kids are going to become social scientists by the way they organize their hockey cards <laughs> oh that's an interesting one yeah it was it, that was a really fun episode i have a buddy back home um daver if you're listening i know you are because you told me you, you do um he really liked that episode oh good yeah so 
So that's good. We got good positive reviews. Um, I told him to actually post a review, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, I can, I can. Do you have anything else to add? No, before? man. Let them know I can tell can everyone where and how they can post the reviews. Uh, you can tweet at us at the underscore s i m underscore p o d. You can send us an email at semiintellectual at gmail dot com. Uh, our website, which includes the current episodes and all back. Uh, all episodes that we've published uh, is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, we are on Stitcher, we're on Google Play, we're on your favorite podcatcher. Please uh, give us those ratings and reviews. It really helps the show. Um, this is our uh, one month anniversary, Matt. Is it? It oh, is. That's, that's so romantic. Yeah. <laughs> our one month anniversary. So uh, happy one month anniversary podcasting, Matt. Cool. I, I might tie into that 12 year old scotch that you got in your cover oh, that you talked about like two yeah. episodes back. <laughs> we're doing that. Celebrate. Let's get on with the show. Celebrate. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Matt and Phil here. On today's episode, we wanted to start a discussion around careers, nature of work, uh, the essence, nature of a career, what academic careers are, what they used to be, and uh, we're going to preface this discussion as being uh, kind of um, the way to open the door to future episodes where we're going to pick up on specific aspects of what we're going to talk about. But today we just kind of wanted to have an overview um, of the theme. We wanted to kind of explore what it means to work um, in today's world, specifically what it means to do academic work, um, ways that we can do it. Matt has a, a very interesting experience with, uh, with doing it my own experience? Sure. Yeah, so um, kind of what, uh, give uh, us a rundown. Okay, so I was one of those peculiar undergrads who basically, like, in my second semester at community college, I'm like, I want to be a professor of some sort. I don't know what subject it is right now. Might even be accounting, like, but whatever it is, business, I'm going to teach in a university. And that was my goal. Um, so I asked some sort of professor at some point there, um, how do you do this? And they're like, you got to go get your master's and PhD. They warned me right off the bat, um, there is no academic jobs. And that was in 2002, right? And all the way through my lengthy undergrad, which was um, proudly nine years long, uh, two years of medical leaves of absence, and then a whole lot of meandering. Um, Man meandering is not a bad thing. Well, I, I was just... I. After I dropped out of like the business uh, stream, I oh, yeah, I, I always forget that you're in business. Yeah, it was it was weird. I I got to the point where I I completed all the first two years requirements, and then I got to calculus and statistics, and I was like, you and know what, tanked. screw this, and I got into like a really bad car accident or something. I imagine and um, took a year off. And my sister, of all people, said, "Why don't you just do a field of study that you actually enjoy, and then worry about what your job will be afterwards?" Right. So sure. I, I went to archaeology because I'm like, I love ancient history. So I did archaeology for a long time, and I'll save you the decory details. I wandered around, but um, I ran out of courses to take in uh, the field that I was in, in ancient Middle Eastern history and religious studies. It's called Sinners at uh, UBC. Um, they, um, I ran out of uh, courses, and they, the, the counselor was like, 
oh, well, you transfer the most of your courses into anthropology. Why don't you just complete your anthropology degree in a year? Sounds good. And uh, and the first Anthro 100 class, I was like, oh, my God, this is the course that I was always looking for. I never knew what an anthropologist did. And ever since I entered anthropology, every single, like, sort of, quote, unquote, cocktail party that you go to, you're like... I study anthropology and you just look at them and they're like, rarely like 1% of the time people will be like, oh, I took a course there. So they know what it is. But then they're like, most people think you do archaeology and blah, blah, blah. And you have to explain what anthropology is. So that's actually like the seed of this podcast. Like why we started, for me, why I wanted to start a podcast is like, so that I didn't have to have that conversation with everybody. Everyone seems to know what a sociologist is for some reason. Like, I think you do a better job at marketing yourselves. But, to varying degrees, I think. Yeah. But nobody knows what anthropology does. So, like, um, you know, I I meandered around. I All the way through, though, I wanted to be a professor into grad school. And I was always just told that there is no jobs. But I'm like, screw it. I have enough, like, charisma. I'm a good enough teacher. And I do interesting enough research. I always picked research that I thought would be marketable and, like, hireable. Um, that's why I did concussions. Because concussions was, like, the biggest story in 2012. Um, but despite being told repeatedly that I can't get a job, I still, like, just dug my head, buried my head in the sand and just pushed for it until I had to drop out of grad school. But so now I'm sort of at a place where it's like, clearly I'm not going to be a tenured professor because I don't have a PhD, but how can we sort of take what we've learned in school and, and go out into the world with it and get like a quote unquote real job? Right. And what you're describing is kind of the trajectory of what I suspect to be the majority of grad students, undergrads, is that there is a notion of how to gain entrance into a certain field and the kind of, you know, the, the, the price tag of entrance to a professor job is to have a PhD or an MA. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, that's like the prerequisite. Yeah. Like that's just that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. And like, if you only have a master's, then you are only going to be teaching at like community colleges. I call them like university colleges. Yep. They're sometimes called. Um, and also like you, so what we're faced with. So I was told back in 2002 that there's no jobs. Um, and now we're in 2017 and there, it's even worse basically. Right. There's even fewer jobs. And I don't know. I don't give a shit, man. It, part of the reason is that the baby boomers won't retire. Like, there is a shitload of baby boomers in there. And I know that's a bit of an edgy thing to say, but, like, they're sitting in a lot of professorships that they're, you know, they're pushing 70. And they're not really able to teach anymore. And, and justifiably so. They're older people. But they're just occupying those spaces. Right. Um, Sorry. So, I just, I, I had to say that. That's been on my chest for, like, fucking seven years. Right, well, you can say it. <laughs> um, you know, the the academic field is, is an interesting one. It's one that has gone through... Uh, drastic swift and deep changes of recent uh it's an institution that was relatively untouched through other uh during other transformations of work. that's a really good point man i never really thought about that before but that's a really good point yeah so you know the university is kind of one of those last bastions of um employment to be um you know, quote unquote, uh, revolutionized by neoliberal uh, ideology or neoliberal ways of, of practicing business. Uh, the university is a business, uh, at least in North America and a lot of industrial countries. That's another good point. Um, That's, that needs to be uh, like hammered home. Like universities are run like corporations now. 
Uh, they are corporations, um, you know, unless you have a fully funded uh, state university, um, you know, they're, they're profit driven. And one of the things I would just tack onto that corporate thing, what I was going to do in a, in a job interview that I got for a professorship uh, was say that because universities are run like corporations, you can put me in an Anthro 100 class and I will jack enrollment into Anthro 200. And once you get people into Anthro 200, they're going to be Anthro majors. So if our universities are going to be run like neoliberal corporations, then let's start acting like that within our department and prove to the university like deans and whatnot that our department is profitable and marketable and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think there are departments and individuals who try to do that. Now, mm. like you've covered a lot of ground already with what you've said. <laughs> so um, but down, but just to, to, to come back, um, take a step back a little bit. The, the entry cost of doing business at university to teach uh, is a certain level of scholarship. But there are also other things that you need to have to be able to get in there. Um, one reading, and you know, we can talk a little bit more about the sociology of work and the different ways of doing it, but one reading through the sociology of work is that um, you have um, certain um, capitals that you bring in to a job, right? Um, and the skills that you have, uh, some of them can be quantified through degrees, like a PhD, but there are other ones that use other metrics. And the university... Um, has always kind of relied on a single set of metrics until recently, where we start looking to other metrics. So, so like in, in the past, it would be like, do you have a PhD? Have you published one or two articles? How many conferences have you gone to? Like, there's all these sort of like check marks that you're supposed to get. Yeah. So like the publishing aspect uh, to a professor, professorial position yeah. um, really is an indicator of how accepted you are in the community. And that serves, again, that kind of gatekeeping peer review process, at least theoretically. Um, but they've kind of moved beyond that in the selection process. So now it's no longer, uh, um, you know, have you been published and accepted? It's what's your H factor? And an H index or an H factor is how widely read are those publications. What H? Like yeah, so an H index is a computation of how many citations um, your uh, published work has. And Ooh. so is that sociology specific, do you think? Or no. is that becoming the norm? No, it's say? actually it's, it's actually norm. less uh, used in sociology than some other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, but an H index, and there's other I indexes, imagine science, but... it would be like quite common, like the yeah. engineering. They yeah. were the, the, the pioneers of the kind of, of H course. index. And like, you know, you can see on some science publications up to like 30 authors, right? Um, but... Oh, that's why they do that. Sorry, that's why well, they do that. No, yeah, I, 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 I came. I used. I read a lot of like science journals for my my research, right, on concussions. So, like, I, you'd always see that. It'd be like I at all like across my entire thesis because it was just ridiculous. There'd be like thirty authors on there, and somebody told me, uh, one of my supervisors told me that that was why they were doing it is so that you can put those check marks in your whatever checklist. Yeah, and it also has to probably has to do with how you construct a, a fact in those sorts of fields, right? That's like true. you build on the knowledge of another experiment or another yeah. set of authors. And, and like and the nature get... of the research itself. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like okay. what, so, so what we have in the academic field is, you know, these changes in the structure, changes in the social relationships within that structure. So how we collaborate 
and that kind of thing. And then changes in how we evaluate or quantify um, worth. And academic worth has always been something that is kind of taken for granted. So like you have your professor who has a PhD, he's considered, uh, you know, the expert in the field. Um, you know, more and more we start to say, well, are they the expert? Do they hold that sort of sacred knowledge? Uh, can they be tested? Can they be prodded? So then you see pressures on things like tenure. So when we want to, when we say we want to be a professor, really what we want to be is a tenured professor. Yeah, that's right. And the the tenured professors, for um, those who don't know, is the that's that classic like permanent job that you're sort of just locked into, pretty well paying, like. It's just um, like the creme de la creme, but what we've seen with the like, let's say the neoliberalization of yep. universities um, is that they've fragmented that down. So you have all this like um, tenuous, um, temporary type employment. So it starts like the lowliest like teaching position. In a, let's say Canadian university is a contract instructor. You teach one class one semester at a time. Everybody goes in and puts their name in the hat, like a bidding process to teach like a few select classes. And um, I, I remember hearing from somebody that like there's like 5,000 anthropology PhDs in like the greater Ottawa like region going for like maybe five at Carleton and five at U of O uh, classes each semester. So there's like 10 jobs and 5,000 PhDs. Those stats, um, they don't look too good. Yeah, and so there's contract instructors, temporary instructor, instructor, uh, assistant, associate professors. So there's assistant, professor, and associate professor. Um, adjunct professor is another one. Visiting scholar or whatever is another one. And then you have postdocs, which is something you do after your PhD. So there's all these like categories. And everything except tenure professor um, is like what like fleeting or or like tenuous or whatever like they're not guaranteed jobs and you know the academic field uh, in some ways has mimicked what other fields of work has gone through um it used to be if you had a government job provincial or federal you were set mm. uh you would work there your entire career and you know you would do you're you're good. You're golden. You and can, we'll we'll you, save the union sort of aspect for some other show because yeah. that's one factor, but it's one of like many factors. Just like Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Right. <laughs> it's about everything. <laughs> yeah, um, ahead, but but you know more and more what we see is these kind of just in time ways of doing work, um, and it all follows. I, I think the mentality of neoliberal production, mm. um, which means you know doing more with less. Uh, trying to, you know, be productive with less inputs is one way of looking at it. But it also has to do, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of the stuff that I brought for us today, including Richard Sennett's corrosion of character, but it also has to do with how individuals approach work. And the, the, the idea that how we work uh, is influenced by the structure within we work. Um, but Matt, Talk to us a little bit about one way that that that, that I think you've had experience with, um, and it's working outside of the typical work like environment. Yeah, no, it's fair. Um, so when I made the decision to withdraw from the PhD, um, I was bummed for like a day or so afterwards. But the decision itself 
like was instantaneous. And I'm like, oh, that's the correct decision to make. And the reason why it was so easy for me after like literally like 16 years of like having one goal in mind of being a professor um, was because of my health like issues, right? So I'm a bit of a special case that way, but, um, you know, I can be dwell on the fact that I can't do academics like formally anymore, or I can just be like, well, how can I take what I've learned and also work within my limitations and make my own work. So like, I also come from a long line of entrepreneurs. So like, it's very natural for me to just be like, well, I'll just create my own job. Right. So that's kind of what I'm going to do. I'm kind of think trying to get my head around the idea of being like a free agent academic. One of the outlets um and that's what i have to do is find outlets right one of the outlets is this podcast like if anyone out there has a company who would like to sponsor this podcast i am more than willing to sell up for you but <laughs> just kidding but we, um, we can talk about that but like that's one way is is this and another way is i'm going to start writing for the um website um and these are like one of the things i think is important is to like Get out of the neoliberal mindset that everything, you have to make money off of everything. Sometimes you just do stuff and maybe there's going to be a payoff later, but like it's more productive to do things that um, you feel are productive for yourself or fulfilling for yourself. So like I'm trying to like sheerly out of a way of combating boredom. I'm trying to fill my life with... um, intellectually stimulating um things um and yeah so i'm trying to find different avenues so for me like being a contract instructor like once every like three or four semesters just teaching an anthro 100 class that would actually be perfect Mm, right like that's actually really that sort of unsure if i'm going to be working um kind of position um that's kind of shitty like going up against like people with phds and stuff and you can write a better prospectus than me but like it'd be really fun to just sort of teach a random anthropology class from time to time. So like, I'm trying to find other things. Another thing that I thought about doing, and maybe this podcast could be like an avenue towards doing this, but starting to host um, like symposiums around town that are just sort of open to the general public. And you just charge like a five, $10 uh, head admission. So like when I say like I'm an entrepreneur, I'm taking my entrepreneurial spirit, but also combining it with the academics to make it like fulfilling to me, like cognitively. Matt, you have embodied and uh, are a living uh, case study example of the ways in which uh, labor and work have been transformed. If we would go back um, even 20 years ago, um, you would have to search very hard to find an academic uh, who would repeat what you just said. There, there, you would have to search even harder to find a shop worker or a factory laborer saying, yeah, I'm going to do, you know, five, six, seven different things, some of which I might not get money for right away. Uh, I, I need to build my network. I need to market myself and I'm going to be an entrepreneur. The, the idea of entrepreneurship, the idea of doing, you know, these multiple tasks is something that is relatively new in the world of work. Um, yes, we've always had businesses and we've always had people create new businesses but the idea that as a worker so someone who doesn't own their labor power who doesn't produce their own wealth uh being an entrepreneur is relatively new so this is going to seem 
off the wall, but I'll connect it. Um, my mom is um, the person who taught me feminism. And uh, she made the decision when I was like one year old, um, when I was born, basically, to not go back to um, work. Uh, she's a primary school teacher, uh, elementary school teacher. And um, she decided as a feminist to stay home because she's like, feminism is women having the ability to make their own decisions, right? And she was judged like crazy for, because it was in the 80s, for leaving a career to stay at home as like a quote-unquote housewife. But the entire time that she stayed at home, she always did other things. Um, part of the reason was because to bring money in because we we're like, you know, lower income like background um but um she's like like my dad started his own business but she's a real entrepreneur and she's a real like free agent entrepreneur so she did the whole selling avon and mary Kay um cosmetic products um she was also she also managed the uh, townhouse complex that we worked at or lived at rather um she started her own tutoring company where she it was like a referral system um and there was probably like two more things that I can't remember. And she was involved in our school. So it's like because she's a highly intelligent woman and she just got bored as well. So what I'm facing right now is boredom. And the thing that motivates me is fucking boredom, man. Like I'm just I just sit around just listening to podcasts and waiting for like the Friday that I come up to the woods and record our own podcast. <laughs> so so like that some people would get very discouraged. And I've had bouts of depression with the boredom. Um, I don't care uh i don't mind saying that on this but um boredom can be a real motivator as well and that's a good way to position it so i feel like yes it's true that this free agent sort of entrepreneurial spirit is sort of new but it, we can also look back into our own past and and see this sort of desire to break through and you often saw it in the 80s with women because they didn't have that same opportunities that you know, a heterosexual white male um, in right. 2017 does, right? So, like, they were being entrepreneurs uh, before it was a, a quote-unquote thing because that was their only fucking chance. Right. You have touched on our next point, which is the connection between our labor and our identity. Um, as, as, you know, you talk about how rebranding yourself, getting into these different things is a representation of our identity – all these things, you know, boil down to a shift in how we view ourselves. And that is basically um, what Richard Sennett explores in The Corrosion of Character, the personal consequences of work in the new capitalism. And, you know, what Sennett does is he traces the ways in which um, workers need to adapt, need to change how they view themselves and how the world views them. Uh, in light of structural changes uh, to uh, labor itself. So um, before we really dig into um, this book, um, when you say self, like that has uh, specific connotations, I think. Um, so it's good to think like personhood, selfhood, like the idea of like, think about self as like an existential thing. It's like a whole body, like your entire being thing. Um, so when Bill is saying like, we need to change how we view ourselves and how we position ourselves um, it's like, it's really kind of drastic. Like it's, this is not like just little tweaks, like, Oh, if you uh, go for a run for 15 minutes a day, you're going to be a more productive worker. Like this is like real, like kind of deep, deep stuff that way. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, what Senate shows quite adequately in his book is one of the first things, uh, that changes is your relationship to your job. Um, 
So we opened up the conversation talking about tenure track professorships. Those are long-term one sort of career uh, installments. You work 40 years doing the same thing. Uh, my mother-in-law, for example, worked 43 years as a nurse. Uh, hasn't done anything else, really. Well, has done a lot, but not in terms of her identity as a worker. My, my dad's the same way. He's like 35 years in pest control. Right. right. So, you know, for these extended periods of times, you wear one uh, sort of identity as a worker. I am X. I am a nurse. I am a firefighter. I am a baker. Um, I am uh, a farmer. Um, that doesn't happen so often anymore. What we see now is that we have to either wear multiple hats, so working part-time, low-paid jobs, doing multiple things, or uh, if we are uh, chancy enough to get something that pays enough full-time, we'll change. And, you know, the rhythm of change goes through ebbs and flows. Right now it seems to be three, two to three years uh, per job title. And that even applies in academia. So for two or three years, you'll be at one university wearing one hat, doing a set of courses, and then uh, you need to change. And there's, there's, very, there's various pressures to why we change and why people are changing. But, you know, from a purely kind of social science humanities observation, change is happening. Um, and you're even so much as encouraged to change universities, like you're not encouraged to go do your master's at the same place you did your undergrad or do mm. your PhD where you did your master's. Yeah. You're actually encouraged after that two, three years, four years for your undergrad to move on to somewhere else, right? Um, and it was really interesting, the relationship to job that you talked about, your mother-in-law, my my dad, same deal. Um I always found that it's a struggle to justify to people of that generation, the baby boomers, um, like one justify that it's okay to have like, um, frenetic, like sort of job security. Um, but also trying to convince them that that is the nature of employment nowadays. And like they either, I find they either get one or the other of those, but not both. And it's right. like a struggle to sort of justify that, yeah, we don't have it as good as you did, uh, baby boomers, you selfless generation. And that's the thing. Sorry, another thing that's always been on my chest. Baby boomers have got to stop calling millennials the selfless generation. Those guys, the baby boomers are the biggest sucks. They have they have bled this economy dry. Fucking consumers. Yeah, there, there's Go, a, take it from there, Phil. Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of uh, a lot of built up anger I, I hear in your your voice, yeah, there, Matt. Yeah. Um, like there's some there's 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 some analyses and uh, I don't have them in front of me, but um, when you look at the accumulation of wealth and the distribution of wealth, it kind of uh, taters off around the baby boomers. Mm. So what you're saying, you know, has some verifiability behind it. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so what about the justifying like and convincing people who um, grew up and, and worked in a very different uh, career landscape than what we're facing right now? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, to be able to get there, you kind of need to accept that that, uh, exists and you have to kind of embrace it. So I think you can, um, you know, if you want to try to convince someone that what you're doing, uh, is the way of doing it, you've kind of already accepted that that is how work is to be done. Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of people, uh, including millennials who don't accept that that's how work, uh, needs to be done. And then we see the rise of things like stay-at-home fathers. Mm. Uh, we see the rise of things like uh, freelance academics. Um, 
you know, it was, I had a really interesting experience writing, um, being paid to write a report for a uh, police service. Um, this is the sort of thing that academics uh, would be hired to do. Probably wouldn't get paid much to do it. Definitely wouldn't constitute like the bulk of their salary for the year because they'd be paid by their university or whatever. Um, but more and more now we see freelance academics, uh, academics who work uh, in uni- uh, outside of university. Uh, mm. These are different arrangements of work. Uh, and those arrangements of work really have an impact. And that's what Richard Sennett's kind of arguing. Those different arrangements have an impact on how we view ourselves and our identity. And what really starts to, in his kind of view, erode or corrode is the notion of character. So the notion that I am a baker, I understand my craft fully uh, I know how to make bread. I know how to do all these sorts of things. And um, that is my identity. That is the character that I, that I live my life through. It's very difficult um, when you have to be a computer programmer, a marketing expert, a PR expert, a cashier, an accountant, and bake some bread on the side. Which of those things that you do constitutes your character? Very difficult to to pin one of those things down now. So we'll return to the stay-at-home dad thing because that's obviously relevant to me, but uh, the corrosion of character is too interesting to sort of put a pin in right now. So um, it's interesting when you say, like, oh, I'm, like, are you an accountant and a baker of bread and candlestick maker or whatever? Um, um, it's interesting that the sort of our generation, like the millennials, um, we're expected to be like Renaissance men and women. Like, we're supposed to have the same sort of, like, chaotic um, information-saturated world of the internet. We're supposed to have that as part of our character. Like, I'm supposed to be able to bake bread, know something about scotch, know something about wine, be able to cook, um, like, have a six-pack. Like, you know, it's just like, like all these things that we're supposed to do. And then when you, like, falter on any one of these components of your character or selfhood... um, it's like an attack on the entirety of your character and your entirety of self. Like if I'm, I built so much into being an academic, um, that when I left academics, I was surprised at how much it did not affect me. Like it was almost like, I was like, Oh, that was just a part. And also like, I'm always going to be an academic. I'm always going to be a nerd who like reads too much. And like, thank God we have this podcast because like, I've been boring my friends with these sorts of, ramblings um so this is why we started the podcast um so the corrosion of character it's it's interesting how when we're trying to build ourselves up um if we sort of quote-unquote fail at one or more of these sort of um aspects of our character then our entire selfhood is called into question well is it or like what does senate say what do you think like well well i think this is this is the point is that when um when the system is structured in a way in which you can wear the hat of, um, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stop picking on bakers for a second and I'm going to, um, you know, I'll pick up on a, on another occupation, let's say plumbers where all of your energy, focus, time, identity is wrapped up into you being a good plumber. Um, when you fail at plumbing, your entire self fails, Right. But when you're doing uh, 13 different things, sure, you could, uh, you know, fail at one of those. And the way 
that you live your identity can remain intact and you don't feel like a complete failure. By having all these components of by, character. Oops, by having, oh, that's... Oh, that's my cell phone. <laughs> so, you know, in a way, what you can say is that um, the fragmentation of work has led uh, to more opportunities to feel successful. And, you know, almost coincidentally, what you see with the rise of the fragmentation of the work are all these books, self-help books about how to be successful, how to be your own person, entrepreneur. Um, you see the rise of industries like the happiness industry, where you always have to be happy. Um, these were ideas, concepts that didn't resonate with past generations. The idea that you can, you know, go through life always on a high, always doing good, these sorts of things never really resonated. Um, like you had to experience hardship. You had to go through rough times. Um, but when you're doing 13 different things and one of them isn't successful, you say, okay, well, I'll, I'll just drop that and do 12 other things. Or maybe I'll pick up another four things somewhere else. And it almost is at a surface level. And I think that's what Senate is arguing is that the structure of work is at a surface level because you only partially understand what you do. And then your character, your identity almost needs to live at that surface as well. That's interesting because I have maybe I'm just a cynical son of a bitch, but uh, well, um, I don't, I'm not sure you could get more cynical than what I just said. Yeah, because <laughs> like, like that—that's interesting. Like it's cynical what you said in the sense that like all these things that we do that we think are like an intrinsic parts of our character, like parts, I guess, plural. Um, they're just really just surface. I was thinking like I thought I was being cynical by saying like if one of these I guess surface aspects of our character does fall to the wayside, then we have a crisis of character, um, where you're like, oh, I'm a failure, like in general. Yeah, and um, it's kind of interesting what you say that we have. You know, we are the generation that was told that um, we're winners. You know, that we cannot fail. Like everyone got a participation medal or whatever. Um, so, like we mentioned, I mentioned this on a previous episode, but like my students, like when you gave them like a C plus, like they were devastated because it's like literally the lowest grade they've ever got. Um, so we also haven't learned how to fail or like, because maybe it's because we both played sports or whatever. And like, we probably like sucked when we started any sport that we started, but then we got good over time. Um that teaches you something about your character. Whereas like, like with me, with dropping out of grad school, I, um, I was just like, Oh, well, I'll go do something else or whatever. Be bummed. Like the last summer, I just played golf all summer because it's something I was good at. <laughs> and it felt really good to get out there and it was great stress reliever. And yeah, it's just, I dropped like 10 strokes off my handicap. <laughs> right. Um, but like it's so what like what I'm trying to say is that like you're kind of like either if you lose something and then you have a existential crisis or if you treat all these things as almost just surface things like they don't even matter. Like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, it seems like. You know yeah. I mean? well, and I think what I'm trying to say and what Richard Sennett is saying is that what what you're explaining is new, uh, that, you know, the idea that um, we can have these um outlets uh that give us our self-worth and feed uh some notion of character identity outside of our work um and still kind of think of that as being work or something mm. valuable like work is relatively new so like the whole idea of a stay-at-home father 
is the valuation of, um, you know, domestic care and domestic work. Um, and that transition, you know, is very difficult. And I don't purport that even women uh, who stay at home or women's domestic work is valued uh, as it should be. Um, but men's domestic work um, in that situation definitely isn't. Um, but the idea that like you can place a value on that is relatively new. And, and like, I know you're saying value, like a more of a, like a philosophical, like a social but, value, but I'm, I'm going to say like economically, the re the way I ended up justifying like the realization that I am going to be a stay at home father for the next five years um, is the cost of childcare. Like it, it was straight up an economic decision. That's the economic Decision is what made me okay with my masculinity. Sure, but there's a social value that gets placed on it, right? And because I economically, think... it makes more sense as well for one of the two parents or whatever to stay home. Of course, uh, yeah. but the social value of the one who stays home is always less. And then economically, like um, take my socialist hat off for a sec, but like economically, it's more productive to have both parents out working if they're able to or whatever, and then put the kids in like some low cost childcare. But that's not the world we live in, or the country we live in, at least. Um, and I would argue almost that staying home as a male. Um, is more socially valued than women staying home at work. Like a like my mom faced when she decided to stay home, mm. um, she was ridiculed by other women who um, either were stay at home moms but like left their careers re more reluctantly or um, put their kids in daycare. And right. um, like when I tell people I'm going to be a stay at home dad, either my male friends are like, oh, you're so lucky, man. Like, you're lazy, basically, is what they're implying. Right. And, like, I already mentioned, man, the boredom is a killer, right? Um, and then with women, they think I'm, like, super progressive. Right. Like, they're okay. like, look at this yeah. super, like, feminist, this fourth-wave feminist over here staying at home with his kids. And they'll then they'll say, like, oh, well, my whoever, uh, brother-in-law, brother, he, he did that. And don't worry, there's other guys at these parenting circles that you'll be able to, like talk with like like as if i can't talk to like be friends with a female <laughs> like, right, yeah. like so like when i'm doing something that's like <clears throat> society is seen as like progressive um in a masculine sense um they also are trying to fit me back into this male only box where i can only like be a a, a male stay-at-home dad right right like i'd rather position myself as a stay-at-home parent yes yeah um Okay, I'm going to switch gears uh, uh, a little bit. Um, academic uh, careers, that's kind of how we jumped into to this conversation. We wanted to open up a uh, we wanted to open up the theme, right? And I think um, we're going to want to have some postdocs, uh, some recent PhD graduates, and as well some recent undergraduates come on to talk about their experiences of entering the workforce after uh, graduating. And we're going to create this kind of artificial separation between being a student and then entering into the workforce. But, um, before we, we, we go down those in future episodes, I wanted to talk about the dual relationship between studying and work. It is, um, a, uh, a key to our experience, at least, uh, while we're at school. Um, and it's a, a huge facet, I believe of, a growing number of students that they have to have some, some form of employment while going to school. Um, again, this is something that is relatively new. 
Um, not saying that it didn't happen before, but increasingly we're finding higher numbers of uh, graduate students occupying work as well as trying to complete grad studies. Um, for example, when I was going to Kwantlen College, which I, I proudly say the name, I think Kwantlen's a great institution in uh, Surrey. Um, when I started there, uh, a class was um, $50 a credit. So it's three credits for one semester class. Um, so that's $150 a class. Um, after, I know we don't do too much politics, but after the Liberal government in British Columbia came in, they removed the tuition freeze that the NDP put in place. And I'll spare you all the details, but basically tuition increased 300% in one year. So my class went from $150 to $450. Wow. And then all of a sudden, like, it was no longer that you can work some sort of job in the summer, stay, live with your parents, and pay for your entire year of school, two semesters of school. Um, then all of a sudden, you're taking three classes a semester because you can't afford five classes a semester. And, so and so. working during the semester. And all right? the way through. I, I worked the entire way through because I actually graduated with only, like, $5,000 of student loan debt. And that's a whole other episode we can do is yeah. like the yeah. debt, the indebtedness of the student. Yeah. But. What, uh, so my experience has always been going to school and working. Uh, so that's either having a full-time or part-time job. I, I, I don't really know any students unless their parents set up some sort of college fund for them in the eighties. Like you just, every student that I've ever gone to school with always has, a, has worked. Yeah. Unless like you're on a major bursary, uh, or you're able to tap into external funding. Um, and like Phil and I both had like internal and external funding, um, like all the way through, like we, we would win these things called like OGSs, which is the Ontario Graduate Scholarship. Some people win shirks, like these, there are various external funding bodies and we get like internal funding. It's a little more like funded on anthropology for whatever reason at Carleton. Um, but like, this is on top of, like, the funding we already get, which has also been, like, kind of eroded away as the cost of education has increased. Right. Um, so, it's, like, we do work, and it's and it's not work. Like, I worked at, like, a like a wine store for two and a half years, like, right in the middle of my master's and PhD. Like, yeah. you know, it's not, like, academic-y work that we're doing. I was, like, selling wine, basically. Right. <laughs> like, um so yeah, like you have this situation where uh, you're, um, you know, being increasingly pushed to publish uh, as a grad student. Uh, you're pushed to finish within a certain amount of time. You're pushed uh, to succeed uh, to finish, um, ideally with the less amount of student debt as possible, which entails having to work uh, some part-time really shitty jobs uh, for the most part. Um, you know... When you're wearing all those hats, uh, what uh, you know, it's a question, but I, I don't know what the repercussions are on the level and depth of learning that, oh, that can happen. Sure, you do, man. You, you know that from your own experiences. I know from my own experiences. I can list off and I can name drop five people right now who all had to, like, they're good friends of mine at grad school who all worked through it. And absolutely, if you go work any job, for any amount of hours in a day, you are not reading academic journals and writing your thesis in the evening. That just does not happen. You just need to like kick back and watch some Netflix or whatever and just recuperate your brain. But then isn't there a counter argument to be said or to be had that your experience outside of the university mm -hmm. uh, can lead to new insights or different ways of understanding the material that 
you're consuming at university. Yes, for sure. And I encourage working, but then when you're working 37.5 hours a week, so just under 40 hours, so you don't get the full-time benefits, um, then you just, like, I think fatigue just kind of takes over at that point. Because, like, I would definitely have revelations when I was, like, behind the counter at the wine store. Um, But I, like you know, th- those are few and far between. Like I'd have revelations in the shower for God's sakes. Like I didn't need to be at a wine store to have a revelation. Like, cause both of us, we worked out in the real world, quote unquote, all the way through our university. Like ever since we were probably like 16, 17 or whatever, when we got our first part-time job, like, so I think we have a fair enough dose of like what the real world, I don't think the ivory tower, so to speak, like these um, detached academics that like, don't really know what the real world is what's going on out in the real world. I don't think those people really exist anymore because as you say, we all at least work part-time, shitty part-time jobs or, you know, we, we're out in the world for God's sakes. Like we can't just sit cloistered in our universities anymore because it's not, the environment is not that way anymore. Right, right. And um, I think the point that we're getting to or, or moving slowly at like a locomotive sort of pace yeah, to keep going man i'm a little i'm honestly a little bit off this episode so well I'll take it, the lead Phil. well 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 it's just that the acquisition of skills uh typically when we think of labor or when like work uh when we think of schooling um what you're trying to do is gain human capital uh gain skills and the flavor and the ways in which those skills are acquired and then deployed or used has drastically changed. So what we see is that you can be a grad student in social science, humanities, or arts, and you're acquiring all sorts of marketable, transferable skills. The idea of a transferable skill is relatively new. The idea that um, learning literature, reading books, gives you a soft skill that then you can apply in another field outside of literature, that idea is relatively new. Um, I don't think it's well embraced in the social sciences, humanities, and arts, um, but it's there. And that's interesting. I, I didn't think you're going to say within the social science, humanities, and arts. I, I thought you're going to say well embraced outside of universities. Like I think it's actually kind of both. Like it's um, within universities, professors they don't understand um, how to make like communicate that the skills are transferable. But then when you also go out into the job market, you, as I said, like telling people what anthropologists do, like that's, that's what you're going to have to do in an interview is say, these are the skills I have. And you better be able to use terms like you just did, like soft skills. Like those are corporate sort of terminologies that you're going to have to like bring into your interview. I think if you want to get a job. Right. But I, you know, it's very particular to social sciences, humanities and arts An engineering student who learns, uh, you know, engineering, engineering, let's just say <laughs> like a civil engineer yeah. who learns the code for building a bridge. Right. Uh, that is a hard skill, soft skill, marketable yeah. skill, employable skill. It's on a resume. You don't, the person reading it understands it's communicable. The same thing with computer science. Uh, I know Java. I know CSS. I know yeah. there you go. And yeah. there it is. I know how to do a bibliography. Mm. Meh, what does that mean? Yeah. I know. I, I, I know, can do participant oscillation. Ro- like, like what the hell? <laughs> I can, I can, I can quote discourse. Like what yeah. does, yeah. but yet these are skills that uh, most um, people in the workforce use or do mm. or have or aspire to have or need to have. Like um, a seminar at grad school, like our classes, basically, 
they're basically like a, a meeting slash, I know it's probably an outdated term, but brainstorming sessions. Like you're kind of like, that's what I would, I imagine that's what meetings are where you just get a whole bunch of people in the table and you just bang around ideas. Like that is probably the most transferable skill, but I don't even know what that's called because I haven't been in like corporate Canada <laughs> at all. Right. You know, I've always worked as a, you know, like a uniform wearing like idiot behind a cash register. So I don't like, so I guess like another thing you can, we can recommend to people to do is like take your research skills that you developed in grad school and find out what some of these terminologies are, because sometimes you have to adopt the discourse of the industry or the sectors that you're going into. Like if somebody heard you say brainstorming and that's like an outdated term, they're going to immediately peg you as some sort of like dinosaur or something. Right. Um, academic uh, language uh, always seems to fall behind, although it's getting a little bit better. Or um, even like um, academics being aware of the language, like the, um, uh, the the lingua franca or whatever, like the, yeah. the like the, the, like we're, we're always five years behind. Like I remember when people were writing about second life in like 2010, right. like it's, you know, we we're always kind of behind the curve that way. But like, I think that's a very valuable skill is just like learning the the linguistic codes of corporate America. Right. You know? What What is commonly um, used are things like uh, writing, reading, uh, creative thinking or critical thinking, uh, organizing, research. Uh, these are the sort of things that are thrown around between academic spheres mm. and non-academic spheres. Mm. Now, obviously, there are many different types of work that don't need those skills, but as a social science, humanities, and arts uh, student, scholar, those are the kind of skills that we use um, on everyday sort of basis. And and unless you're like some sort of like savant when it comes to creative stuff or something, like you're you're not going to pursue careers and sectors that are completely unrelated to your skill set. Like you're probably going to gravitate towards things that are like you know teaching based or reading based or like you know, meeting based or things like this. I don't know. Right. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's kind of wrap it up as an intro um, into this, but from the idea of academic careers, the changing nature of work, uh, we started looking at the perils of working uh, in the neoliberal age. One of the things that we uh, touched on and we will definitely have to go back on is the social value of labor um, the social value of what is considered productive labor. Richard Sennett's The Corrosion of Character, Personal Consequences in the New Capitalism is a must-read for any discussion around uh, work arrangements, uh, the impact of structures of labor on our self or our identity. Um, and then we kind of finished with transferable skills, soft skills. And for that, um, there's a lot of good stuff that Bouldier uh, has written. Um um, you know, kind of more from like a, a game theoretic, uh, how you deploy your skills, how you use your, your personal capital, these oh, sorts like, of things. Uh, like social action, right? Like like how you deploy your skills within like situations and things like this? Yeah, and it's more of like a, almost like a game, you know, the way he sees it, um, which, you know, all these sort of things can be seen as kind of like a game. Mm. Yeah, like, uh, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. I never knew that, man. I'm a little bit like at loss because I have nothing to add to Porter. I didn't know he ever like uh talked about work so. yeah yeah cool interesting all right
Do you have anything else to add, Matt? Um, I think there is a lot of rabbit holes that we could go down, and I'm looking forward to future episodes. Um, forgive me, I'm, I'm somewhat scattered. Like, I felt like right when we started recording, I was like, oh, God. Like, I don't know if I can form coherent sentences. So thanks for bailing me out so many times, Phil. Yeah, well, you know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> so man. how the hell can they reach us, my friend? Well, if you're interested in what we've talked about, you can tweet at us at the underscore sim underscore pod that's the sim pod you can send us an email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com our website that includes this current episode and all past episodes is thesim.podbean.com we're on itunes stitcher google play and your podcatchers of choice please give us some ratings and reviews and if you'd like to be a part of the conversation about work academic work send us drop us a line send us an email uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to have some people on who are recent graduates uh, looking and in, getting into the job market. Uh, we'd love to hear some from postdocs as well, or uh, even some professors uh, who have gone through the tenure experience, um, maybe denied tenured, accepted tenured, all these sorts of things. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. Matt and Phil here. Um, Matt, this this kind of sounds familiar. Uh, we have some recommendations and Matt brought in some music for us. Uh, what is this? this? So, okay, so you might recognize the banjo, but uh, it's the very famous American folk singer Pete uh, Seeger. Seeger, that's yeah. what this is. And it's spelled S-E-E-G-E-R. Yeah, Pete Seeger. He was, um, I'll spare you the details of all his life. I encourage you to, like, read up on him. He was um, called before the, the communist um, bureau thing in, that they had in the States, the McCarthy uh, thing. The McCarthy trials? Yeah, yeah. He was called up in that, and he got blacklisted in um, his music. And it's clearly, if you hear Little Boxes, what we were just listening to there, is a very sort of Marxist-y, uh, Marxist-y kind of folk song, which I think is pretty on the golf course and drink their martini dry and they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp and then to the university and they all get put in boxes and they all come out the same and the boys go into business and marry and raise a family and they all get put in boxes little boxes all the same there's a green one and a pink on a long and lonesome highway east of omaha you can listen to the engine moaning out as one note song you can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before. Matt, you also have a second song for us. Uh, what is this that we're listening to now? Which sounds even more familiar than the first one, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, so this was uh, is a lot more familiar, and it's my favorite karaoke uh, song. Uh, it's Bob Seger, uh, spelt Jeffrey. Bob Seger, okay. Bob Seger, yeah, and it's called Turn the Page. See, here I am, on the road again, 
As you're shaking off the cold, you pretend it doesn't bother you, but you just want to explode. Well, the, the, those were great. Um, I have uh, something uh, a little different, and, you know, it's Most really hard for me. Well, it's, it's not often that I'll recommend a TV show. Uh, yeah. Well, as you know, I don't have a TV. (laughs) That makes it difficult to recommend TV shows. (laughs) Kind of. Um, But um, I've recently, uh, well, not recently, I've um, followed Fargo, the TV series. I've been meaning to get into that. So I hear nothing but good things. It is fantastic. I watched season one, season two, like uh, as soon as they came out. And I've been actually watching season three. So, um, you know, Fargo, the TV series, is... um, Created by Noah Hawley, it airs on the FX uh, cable network uh, station. And season three uh, stars Ian McGregor, Carrie Coon, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, if you watched uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, she's the one that has the the blue hair and the red hair and everything. <laughs> Super amazing. Gorn Bogan and David Thewis. Um set in Minnesota. It follows uh so each season follows its own individual self-contained story but there are and like most people have seen the movie right like i've only seen the movie fargo well so is it set in the same sort of like world as minnesota in like the 80s or whatever well season three is set in 2010 oh um what about the other two seasons are they like set historically or something yeah season one i believe was like during the uh 80s the 70 uh, no 80s yeah uh, maybe 90s and then uh, season two was like the 70s and are each season like standalone like cases maybe yeah is that how it works they're self-contained narratives but there are overarching kind of storylines that Mm -hmm. connect everything up and there's little like um they they pay tribute to the movies uh but they don't follow exactly the same movie storyline but anyway there's lots that would be really limited (laughs) lots of snow lots of like uh you know accents from minnesota uh, which are freaking just awesome might as well be manitoba (laughs) yeah basically yeah yeah oh yeah for sure oh yeah oh yeah uh lots of police kind of weird stuff going on lots of little small town dynamics it's actually phenomenal Uh, there are 10 uh episodes in in season three six are out uh right now and okay. i've watched all six well are they um i only have netflix is is it on netflix it's not on netflix oh, it's damn. on fx i'm yeah. waiting for that to come out then yeah yeah oh, um, that's good i've only heard great things about fargo and i was actually curious to learn more about it well and the other reason why i'm talking about it is uh as matt approaches his uh you know day where the little sanderson will come into the world the day of reckoning uh we will be joined by a special guest uh co-host aaron henry uh, and one of Aaron's, uh, topics is going to be Fargo. So he, uh, he, he's much more knowledgeable than I am about the TV show. Uh, but w- he's going to join me and we're going to talk about Fargo for, uh, at least one episode, possibly two. That's good. It's going to be something that I'm listening to at 3am when, uh, I'm up changing diapers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. For oh, sure yeah. there, eh? <laughs> if you've enjoyed what you've heard or if you want to leave us any comments, oh, you, can, sure. you can reach us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Our website, which includes this episode and all past episodes, is thesim.podbean.com. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and your podcatcher of choice. That's a wrap for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Hold me close um, it's been one month that we've been on the air. I've been having a lot of fun with you, Matt. Uh, having a blast, man. It, it's been really great. I want to say a, a, really a personal thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show for the past month. Yeah. Talk to you all soon. Talk to you soon. Yeah.